as hi. Um, most of you guys know me, but if you don't, um, my name is Nagin Van Dordaklu. I'm one of the ultrasound fellows here. Um, for those of you that don't know how to say my name, I've spelled it out phonetically for you right here. Van Dor Dak Lou. Lou. Okay. So um, I'm going to be talking about <laughs> I'm going to be talking about the uh, kidneys and the bladder today. Um, our objectives, I'm going to go over uh, urinary tract infections, uh, nephrolithiasis, uh, hematuria, and urinary retention. I thought about talking about acute renal failure, but that's kind of a big topic, and so I'm going to leave that for another time. We're going to start with questions. There's going to be lots of questions in here. Um, if uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and read it, and then I'll survey you guys to see what you guys think. So. Uh, we have a 24-year-old woman who presents with dysuria, urgency, and frequency. Uh, denies fever, vomiting, and back pain, has no significant medical history, no allergies, her UPREG is negative, and her bedside urine dipstick um, reveals 3-plus blood, um, nitrites, and 1-plus leukocyte esterase. What is the most appropriate course of action? So A is order urine culture and treat with antibiotics for three days. B is order, order a urine culture, treat for seven days, um, just treat for three days, treat for seven days, or wait for the microscopic analysis of the urine before deciding um, whether to order a urine culture. So who thinks it's A? Anybody? Okay. Anybody for B? Okay. How about C? Anybody for C? Okay. A couple for C. D? And what about E? Okay, so the answer is actually C. So the answer is treat with an appropriate antibiotic for three days. And um, we're going to go over all the reasons why that's the case. Basically, it's an uncomplicated urinary tract infection. Um, and we're going to talk about who needs urine cultures and who doesn't. Most, a lot of these questions are from Pier 7. Some of them are from the Carol Rivers book, and then uh, I also have a BRS book that I got these questions from. So we're going to start by talking about UTIs, um, just going over some definitions. Bacteriuria is just bacteria in the urine, okay? UTI is uh, an infection anywhere in the urinary tract. That means from the kidneys down to the urethra. It could be anywhere there. Um, cystitis, uh, inflammation of the bladder, now that could be infectious related to bacteria or it could be non-infectious uh, related to either chemotherapy or radiation or just medication. So cystitis is not necessarily always an infection. When we talk about pyelonephritis, generally that uh, refers to a kidney infection, although it can be inflammation as well. And urethritis, very similar to cystitis, can either be just from irritation or it can actually be infectious as well. Um, people talk about complicated and uncomplicated UTIs. Does anybody know the difference uh, between the two? Anybody know what a complicated UTI is? Males, diabetes, yeah. pregnant, yep. anatomic. Exactly. All those things are uh, considered uh, complicated UTIs. Also, if you have a very virulent pathogen, um, someone with a known, you know, uh, uh, virulent pathogen causing a UTI, that can also be considered a complicated UTI or an immunocompromised patient as is well. Is there an age? Like, is anyone under one years old considered a complicated? Um, neonates in general who have U uh, UTIs, um, they can probably be considered uh, uh, complicated because they're oftentimes present very atypically and sometimes they just present with sepsis in general. Um, but otherwise, I don't really think there's a, an age. Although elderly patients usually treat very conservatively um, with UTIs as well. Um, just going over some uh, numbers here, uh, UTIs are the most common bacterial infection. Um, about 7 to 8 million uh, outpatient visits a year, 1 million hospitalizations, and they account for one-third of all hospital-acquired infections. So all those people that we put in Foley's in and send them upstairs um, and end up getting uh, UTI, those are all considered a hospital-acquired infection. Um, does anybody know when UTIs are more common in males? <coughs> exactly. Neonates. 
in the neonatal period, males actually have a higher um, uh, uh, prevalence of UTIs as compared to females. However, when you approach infancy and beyond, women um, have it more commonly. But it does affect pretty much all ages. So what are some of the causes of UTI? Um, on the left, we have some basic risk factors. So obstruction is probably a big one. Um, uh, reflux, vesicouroteral reflux, any congenital anomalies, anything that's going to um, uh, uh, make you slightly immunocompromised, uh, like diabetes or sickle cell. Sexual activity is a big uh, risk factor. I, th I think most of us have heard of uh, what's called honeymoon cystitis, um, where uh, you can get um, uh, cystitis just from increased sexual activity. Instrumentation, of course, if you've got a Foley, if you had a recent um, cystoscopy or something like that, that'll put you at risk as well. And these are just some of the common bacteria, uh, E. coli being the most common. And um, we oftentimes see these other ones as well, but these are, these are probably the most common, E. coli being the most. So since this is the most common bacterial infection in our body, um, our body does have some defenses against it. Acidity itself um, keeps down uh, uh, the infection rate. Um, uh, bladder defense, we have the mucosa of our bladder uh, uh, destroys bacteria. However, if you do have an obstruction and you're not voiding your bladder completely, um, that decreases that defense mechanism. Your kidneys make local antibodies. They have white blood cells, phagocytes that destroy um, bacteria. And your urinary dynamics itself, so staying hydrated, the, keeping the blood flow to your kidneys, keeping um, uh, the urine output high, that's all um, uh, a defense mechanism as well. So pretty, um, I mean, I think we're all pretty familiar with the signs and symptoms of the UTIs. Uh, kids, again, can present a little bit more atypically, especially in neonates and infants. They may not be able to tell you, I have, you know, it hurts when I pee, um, but they may have poor feeding or irritability. Oftentimes, they'll just have fever. Um, and as they get older, they can tell you, you know, they have dysuria um, or frequency. In adults, uh, you can have hematuria, um, suprapubic pain. You can oftentimes have a low-grade fever, but if someone's telling you they have rigors or you see that they have a high fever, that should raise your suspicion for um, pyelonephritis. Now, if they have flank or CVA tenderness, that can actually be referred pain from the bladder. That may not necessarily be pyelonephritis. But because pyelonephritis is, can potentially be a serious infection, we um, just go treat for pyelonephritis regardless. So it, if they don't have flank pain and CVA tenderness, that's not that does not necessarily rule out pyelo. Um, there are uh, some papers that suggest uh, people have subclinical pyelonephritis despite not having flank pain or CVA tenderness. So what do you order? It's, I mean, uh, this is not rocket science. Uh, you basically are going to order a UA on these patients. You're looking for leukocyte esterase, nitrates, um, uh, uh, white blood cells in the urine. Generally, greater than 10 uh, WBCs uh, per high-power field um, is considered suspicious for an infectious process. Um, and this is actually, uh, I have a lot of tables in here. Um, most of them are from Rosen's. Uh, and this kind of goes over who should get urine culture. So I think you guys mentioned some of this. So children, uh, men, uh, immunocompromised patients, patients who have treatment failure, recurrent UTIs, um, elderly patients, patients who appear septic, um, patients with comorbidities, uh, pregnant women, those are all patients who should get um, urine cultures. And the patient that was in our question was just a 24-year-old female with no medical problems with what sounded like an uncompl uncomplicated UTI, so not necessarily needing a urine culture. Um, yes? Yeah, it's certainly the correct answer for your mm -hmm. exam, right. but at a practical level, Everybody here it's gets very uncommon for us to actually find a patient in the emergency Right. But usually there's something more complicated or the history is not good or it's recurrent or right. and in, in fuzzy. A, and in that case, yeah, I think you're justified in getting a urine culture. Here it seems like most people get a reflex urine culture. So almost everybody here gets a, a urine culture. But for the purposes of the, this, that um, is probably the most more appropriate thing. 
Imaging, most patients do not really require imaging um, unless you're concerned for uh, a, like a perinephric abscess or something along those lines. The patient has pilo, they look very septic, you're looking for some other more serious um, infectious process. But you can use ultrasound or CT. Um, they're both uh, pretty good at looking for um, abscesses and pyelonephritis. You can seek some congenital abnormalities if that's what you're concerned for as well. Um, IV pyelogram, not as good as finding those things. Um, it is really good at finding obstruction, but not, not um, abscesses or uh, pyelo. And um, this is an image of an uh, ultrasound of a child with a, a cystitis. And you can clearly see that there are um, thickened bladder walls there um, consistent with an inflammatory process going on. This is a very busy slide. Um, we're not going to go too in-depth into this, but this kind of breaks down um, the treatment recommendations for women with urinary tract infections. So on the top left, we have just an uncomplicated cystitis in a woman. And then it actually um, goes over some you know, considerations that you should take into, take into consideration. So if no comorbidities, three days of antibiotics is probably enough. Um, diabetic or recurrent UTIs, maybe you want to treat for a little longer, seven days, and if they're pregnant for seven days as well. If they have pyelonephritis and, can, and it's, it seems to be mild or moderate, they're able to tolerate POs, um, they don't appear septic, you could probably treat them as an outpatient for 10 to 14 days of oral antibiotics. Otherwise, if, they're, um, if they look more septic, then you probably want to admit those patients, or if they can't tolerate POs, you probably want to admit those patients as well. Yes? So, um, our UCI antibiogram last year and this year, certainly I'm sure about this year, shows that um, there's a slight slightly increased incidence of resistance for urine cultures sent to the lab here from the UD for back from the cephalexin. Right. So and the is a slightly better choice by a few percentage points. Mm -hmm. And the other thing to point out is that the sulfa drugs have the risk of Stephen Johnson syndrome. Correct. Having worked in a burn center my whole career, I've seen Lots too many patients who come in with some minimal exposure to sulfa drugs, which Right. It's a very good point. But you need five days of Keflex, right? Yes. Very simple. No. Simple use of five days. According to Dr. Burns. And what about macrobit? Mm -hmm. Three days for macrobit, too. That's according to Dr. Burns. Well, who believes that? He's never done a Thoris in Pregnant patients with pyelonephritis, um, I generally admit all the pregnant patients with pyelonephritis. Um, here it says it just recommends it. So. Yeah. I have seen them been sent out from here, actually. So if they don't appear toxic or, you know, no complicating factors, they could probably go home. But um, traditionally, most patients get admitted um, who are pregnant and have pilo. Um, and then obviously, if it's a complicated UTI, uh, you, you're going to treat for longer, about 10 to 14 days. And again, same idea. If they're septic or whatnot, you're, you're going to most likely admit those patients. So here at UCI, this is basically right from Dr. Burns's email to us um, about uh, resistance to um, uh, bacteria, um, antibiotics with E. coli. So fluoroquinolones, which is traditionally what most people use, either Cipro or Leviquin, 21% um, resistance. Um, Keflex, which is one of your first generation cephalosporins, is about 10% resistance. Um, when we're using IV antibiotics, ceftriaxone, cefotaxime is probably the, the best. It's only 1%. Gentamicin is a 10% and macrobit is 5%. So actually macrobit is probably one of the, the better ones to use. So next question. Can I ask a quick question mm -hmm. um, to the attendings too? I, 
I've had a couple of cases where um, one of the attendings wants to give one dose of IV antibiotics and then send the patient home, like with PO Keflex. Is there any reason to do that? Why can't you just give like a PO dose and then send the patient home? Yeah, which one? I, I simple UTIs, is that your question, Tyler? Well, no, it'd be like pilo, pilo, a stable vital signs. Uh, doesn't look sick. There's no, there's no reason. There's no reason to give IV antibiotics, right? Well, my, mm -hmm. my rationale, it's me, is that that only about sixty percent of our patients fill their prescriptions, and if they've got a, uh, a tissue infection, I'm not talking about sinusitis or otitis, who cares? But they've got a tissue infection, kidney, skin, lung. I just want to make sure they get the antibiotics, and I think that that tells them that it's important to get it. It also gives them 24 hours of cefriaxone to beg, borrow, or steal the money to get the Catholic prescription. And I think that I, I feel more comfortable. Nobody could ever say we didn't do as much as we could to treat the infection if we give the first dose of the ED. It wouldn't have to be parenteral either. It could be the first dose of whatever. Yeah. It takes time. It's costly. I recognize that, but that's my own personal philosophy. Don't have to practice that. There's no science behind it. It's just what I think is the same. And the cephalaxone does last 24 hours. Yeah. So even if they are going to go give their prescription, they might not get it right away to begin with. So cephalaxone is probably enough to cure all the cystitis anyway. So and if they've got some, if they've got some uh, referred pain up to the kidney, and so we're treating what we think is pilo, and giving them that may be enough to cure the prescription. I mean, I don't know if I'm wrong with this, but I would do that in the case of someone that's kind of borderline, like, yeah. I'm not quite sure if, like, like, they're vomiting a little bit, and I'm a little bit uneasy, it, it might be pretty significant pile, and they might come in a little septic. I'm, I'm not sure if that's wrong I mean, I think a lot of people do that, so. Somebody who's reliable, and you really think you're going to fill it, and sure, just go ahead and treat it. Yeah. Because the nurses have to free. dispense it right. and everything. Well, <laughs> no, but in a reasonable patient who were like, well, I can give you this, but it's going to cost you a couple yeah. hundred dollars versus. First of all, there's a difference between cost and charge. Yeah, charge often. The patient, the patient, I'm see, which is much patients oftentimes don't cost. pay and what they're being charged. Even they don't. Everything is. Uh, going to be your judgment call. You know, if the patient looks sick, you know, it's probably fine to get a IV. So nitrates are 
are pretty sensitive. Well, leukocyte nitrosate and nitrites are pretty sensitive. So if they have a positive nitrite, you're probably going to treat that patient for um, AUTI. Leukocyte esterase, it kind of depends. Um, you know, if they have a lot of white blood cells in the urine and they have leukocyte esterase, so leukocyte esterase comes from white blood cells, right? So if you have a lot of white blood cells in the urine, chances are you're probably going to have positive leukocyte esterase. So depend, you're gonna, you have to look at a lot of the aspects of the, of the UA also. So is there bacteria in there? Is, do they have symptoms? Um, is there WBCs in there? So, um, and leukocyte esterase, unless it's really like a large amount um, and there's only like one WBC, you, you may, you can argue, you know. Um, most of the time, if there's more than 10 WBCs, um, if they have positive nitrites and there's bacteria in there, you're probably going to treat that patient. Or if they have symptoms, they may have a negative um, uh, UA, but they're complaining of symptoms, and I've seen a lot of people treat those patients as well because that might not be sensitive. Mm -hmm. I'll try to break it down at least with the thought processes. First thing is, is it, is it a contaminant? Right, you have to look at the squamous cells. Exactly. That five squames, five squames of fetal cells is not scientific. It's just what I think. But first thing is a reliable specimen. Second thing is number of white cells. So a UTI, as you said, has 10 white cells and above per high-powered field. Mm -hmm. so if it's four white cells, six white cells, I don't necessarily think it's an infection. But then the next step is the glucoside esterase and the nitrite. But I know the nitrite has to the specimen has to sit around for a while to convert nitrate to nitrite in order to register on the dipstick and all that stuff. And so the nitrite is not as sensitive as the leukocyte esterase, and they're both in the probably 70% sensitive range. So they're not, it's not very good. It's just if you were in an office setting and you weren't doing a microscopic UA, then the dipstick becomes more important. So I, I use the nitrite and the leukocyte esterase and then lastly the bacteria as supporting evidence that that eight white cells or 12 white cells is really a, a, a UTI. So I five squames, 10 white cells, and then I add credence to the diagnosis with leukocyte esterase, nitrite, and bacteria. If all three of those were absent and it was eight white cells, I'd probably not treat. You know, so that's a little bit of quantitation to the puzzle. Anybody else? No? Okay. So next question. Um, in the treatment of a three-year-old boy with a UTI, what, which of the following additional signs is the strongest indication for hospital admission? Is it A, localized myalgias, uh, maculopapular uh, rash, uh, high fever, um, mucoid diarrhea, or persistent vomiting? Who thinks it's A? B, C, D, E? All right, good. All right, everybody gets an A. All right, yeah, so if the child isn't able to tolerate POs um, and, and looks dehydrated and all that, then he probably needs to stay in the hospital. The other things are not very, um, uh, they're not too worrisome. So myalgias, fever, diarrhea, you can have all those things with a UTI potentially. The rash, you want to just make sure it's not one of those bad rashes that you need to worry about. So just briefly, I'm not going to really go over all this. I'm just going to go over the top part here. Um, so uncircumcised males, this is just pediatric, basically. So uncircumcised males, um, males under six months or females under one year, if they have fever, they should probably uh, get uh, a UA um, analysis, uh, urine analysis, um, and a, a culture as well um, to determine what's going on, where the fever's coming from. You know, I'm not sure why it's Caucasian. I don't. I don't. Potentially, they have a higher higher risk. I'm not sure. <laughs> and again, just to reiterate that little kids can have atypical symptoms. So just failure to thrive, not eating. Um, uh, fever, vomiting, just look out for those things in little kids because th that could potentially mean they have an infection. Okay, so next question. An elderly gentleman from a nursing home is sent to the ED for evaluation of abdominal distension and discomfort. 
Exam reveals a markedly distended bladder. A Foley catheter is placed and returns two liters of urine initially, and over the next three hours, 900 mLs per hour. Um, what is the most appropriate management of this patient? Discharge to the nursing home with the catheter in place. Removal of the catheter and discharge to the nursing home. Uh, admission to the hospital for IV fluid resuscitation and electrolyte, uh, correction of electrolyte imbalances, or none of the above. C? Everybody wants C? Anybody for A? He's potentially stable otherwise. He's from a nursing home, so. <laughs> so so who, th who thinks A? Anybody for A? Okay. What about B? No one wants B, right? Okay, hopefully no one wants B. Just labs? Okay. So it sounds like most people want C. Okay. So the correct answer is actually C. So you would probably admit this patient for IV fluid resuscitation and correction of electrolyte imbalance. Who knows what's going on with this patient? Exactly. So he's got post-obstructive diuresis. I tried to find a number, um, you know, like if it was more than a certain number after you place the Foley, if that would qualify you as a post-obstructive diuresis. And I really couldn't find a number that said, you know, if it's greater than this amount of liters, that's what it is. So it's, it's more of like you're going to be your judgment call. So we'll, we'll talk about that, um, about post-obstructive diuresis. But urinary, acute urinary retention, basically inability to void uh, or, complete, or completely void. Uh, most often, especially, you're going to see an old uh, man with BPH who says he hasn't been able to pee, and that's who most of these patients are going to be. But there are lots of other causes of urinary retention. Signs and symptoms, pretty straightforward. They're going to say, you know, they have a decrease in, their, in the um, force of their urinary stream. They may have a, a sensation of a full bladder, um, hesitancy, uh, um, and they just feel like they can't empty their bladder. They may have some dysuria as well. Lots of causes of um, urinary retention. I'm just going to focus on a few. So you definitely want to examine the patient's genitalia. Um, make sure they don't have phimosis or paraphimosis. Make sure there's no foreign body in there. You never know. Um, uh, you want to uh, look for strictures as well. Um, you want to do a... Uh, prostate exam, uh, see if, you know, they have just a big prostate that's BPH or if they have a very big abnormal prostate, which may be concerning more for uh, prostatic cancer. Um, and then you want to do a, a, at least take a, a history of uh, neurosymptoms um, just to make sure they don't have a neurogenic cause of uh, their urinary retention. Um, if you really don't have a good answer, you may want to look into what drugs they're potentially taking because there are a certain num uh, number of drugs that can cause urinary retention as well. Antihistamines, anticholinergics, some antidepressants, um, and some um, alpha and beta uh, adrenergic um, medications can cause it as well. These are just, it's not important to know the names of these medications, just to know the classes. So but there are a lot of medications that can cause retention. Yep. Yep. So what are you going to do for these patients? Um, in general, you're going to get a UA and make sure their um, kidney function is okay, make sure their creatinine and BUN are okay. Um, so retention itself is a risk factor for UTI, so that's why you want to check that UA. Um, now, Rosen says that you don't even need any imaging in these patients. so. But since we do a lot of ultrasound here, and most of us know how to do ultrasound, uh, you can check uh, bladder volume and see, uh, you know, check a post, basically a post-void residual using ultrasound. So courtesy of Dr. Fox, uh, this is a, one of his slides actually. So um, most of us already know how to do this, do the bladder volume measurement. So you're going to start in the transverse plane, and you're going to take uh, measurements of the width and the height of the bladder. And then you're going to take a look at it and from the sagittal view and then uh, measure the length. And you're going to multiply those three numbers together. And um, if it's greater than 250, that's the generally accepted number. Um, if it's greater than that, then it's a, a high post-void residual. Um, 
some people I've heard argue that there really is no definite number for this, but 250 is the number that you're going to hear most often. What are you going to do for these patients? You're going to put a Foley in these patients. Um, if you can't put in a Foley, you're going to put a Coudé in. Who knows what a Coudé is? I know our... Right, and what is that used for exactly? Right, it's supposed to pass the prostate. So that tip just goes right over the, over the prostate. If for some reason you can't get the coude in either, um, then at that point you probably want to get urology involved and see if they could. They sometimes have some tricks they can maneuver and get the foley or coude in there. If, um, if you don't have urology available and the patient's in a lot of pain and this is becoming more of an emergent thing, you, c you can put in a suprapubic catheter in these patients. Um, most of these patients can go home with the Foley or the Coudé in and follow up as an outpatient, given that they don't have post-obstructive um, diuresis, if their blood pressure is okay, if, if their kidney function is okay, they're not, they don't have a bad infection or anything, they could probably go home. Um, you, you want to observe these patients for about two to four hours to make sure they're not developing, developing a post-obstructive diuresis. Um, there are a few theories as to why you have a post-obstructive diuresis. They think that um, there are some natriuretic and di di uh, diuretic uh, hormones that the body secretes, and after you put the Foley in, you're just basically diuresing um, a significant amount. So you want to monitor their blood pressure and their electrolytes, because if they are hypotensive or have s severe electrolyte derangements, you're going to want to keep those patients as well for hydration and um, electrolyte replacement. I don't think I've ever seen it. I don't think I've really ever seen it. I mean, I don't think around for four hours either, but... Right. <laughs> Fully home, yeah. In the same vein, I think, is when you take six liters off somebody's paracentesis, that they have these fluid electrolyte shifts, which are all over the literature and the textbooks and stuff, but I just haven't seen it. It's described in the textbooks. I've never seen it, but um, it's described, so... Maybe. Maybe. But it is in the review question, so <laughs> it's something you guys should know for your board reviews. Um, yes, I just lost my train of thought. Yeah, sure. Uh, mainly for the interns mostly, is if you say you realize someone has obstructions and you tell the nurse, like, hey, put a Foley, and then they come back to you like five, ten minutes later, hey, I can't get a Foley, and make sure you at least give it a try or go see what happened. Make sure they use the Coudé because when you call urology a couple times, they'll be like, well, did you try? And you're like, no, the nurse did. And you know the nurse has done it way more times than we have yeah. and way better at it. But you look, you know, I, I just don't like looking like an idiot when I'm like, no, uh, no the nurse did. And they're like, what? And they come down and they put a Coudé in or something. And you're like, well, you don't know if you didn't try. So just make sure it's one of those things that I think that a lot of times we know the nurse does it better than us because they do it more often. But if you're going to call a consult down, really to put a Foley in for the most part or have to do a super pubic, you should at least have at least given it a pass. So. Yeah, definitely. A couple of strategies. I was an orderly for a while before I went to med school, so I didn't have any, many of these. So generally, it, 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 it seemed to make sense that if it's a small hole, you should put in a smaller one, but a larger one sometimes goes through because it's stiffer. So, you know, the 18 doesn't fit. You know, put in a 20, I guess it's bigger. So, larger one and, and consistent pressure as it approaches the bladder obstruct the uh, bladder neck obstruction of the prostate is important so if you just kind of bang on it it doesn't go right if you put it and hold the pressure and hold the pressure for 15 20 seconds even a minute sometimes it just sort of eventually works its way through and a lot of times the nurses are afraid to give that kind of pressure so and if you uh, use lots of lidocaine use the lidocaine gel mm -hmm. stuff the patient does it real time the other thing is to vary the angle of the angle because the different Breathe the ankles. Good, good tricks. Good tricks. What's that? Oh, those uh, the like catheters. They're just flimsier. Well, I don't. 
probably, I've never used one of those, but I would assume they might be even more difficult to pass potentially because you're not able to push it, but they're a little bit more flimsy. Yeah. So you could put more pressure on it. Now, some people say that um, there have been some people that say, uh, you know, just kind of clamp the foley a little, little bit out at a time. But studies show that that doesn't really help. So it, the, you should not ever clamp the foley. Okay. Um, and we already talked about who who probably needs to be admitted. So all refalling drug classes are typically associated with urinary retention, ex, re, retention except sympatholytics, alpha adrenergic stimulants, cyclic antidepressants, or antihistamines. What do you guys think? A? Anybody for A? Anybody for B? We're not sure. I see blank faces. C? D? D. Okay. So it says all of them cause urinary retention except. Okay? That always tricks people. So yeah, A. So sympatholytics um, actually. Yeah. Alpha or beta blocker or something along those lines. Exactly. Yeah, that's the term they uh, they use. But that's a quick question regarding the previous case. Something I've had a difficult time mm -hmm. uh, with my patients is so we put a foley in, and you you tell them to follow up with urology, but obviously that's not going to happen. So this guy's going home with a foley in with basically no. So problem. in those patients, you should probably admit that patient. If you don't think that patient's going to follow up with urology, if they can't take care of themselves, they have some sort of social problem, that patient should probably be admitted to the hospital. Because if you don't, if you put a foley in and you know that patient's not going to follow up with a urologist or a PCP or some somebody, then you should not be sending that patient home with a foley in, in their we have bladder. A, the case manager has at least two appointments in our family practice plan. I know many of you know that, but this would be an ideal situation. If you can't get urologic follow up, at least you tag somebody else and say, "Hey." <laughs> <laughs> But that's if you think they're actually going to go to that appointment also, because there are a lot of patients, like you're, you get homeless guys who come in with urinary retention, they have big prostates, and um, they're still not going to follow up with those people. So, But if you can, yeah, that's a great resource to use. If, if Do you think it's reasonable for a PCP to get this patient? They probably want to know what to do with this patient. Do you guys know what happens when they go to urology clinic? Yeah. Yeah, they take it out, they hydrate the patient, and they see if the patient right. can pee. And if they can't pee, they put the Foley back in and yeah. they address something else. So um, I don't know if a family practice doc would know to do that or not. Honestly, I, I really don't know. I don't know either. But, yeah. <laughs> but sometimes they actually pull out the foley and can cause trauma to themselves as well. Foolish, yeah, but I see people come back to the ED, which proves your point is that a lot of them don't get follow up, but if they come back in a month and it's still in and nobody's dealt with it, then we've got to deal with it. At that point, at least they've had the trial in the world and nobody dealt with it. I guess it depends on who you are. They can potentially get infections as well. Yeah, if they come to the ER after a month of having a folian, right. sure, <laughs> why not? I've done that. I've had patients come back like that. All right, next question. Which of the following statements regarding imaging techniques for the evaluation of suspected kidney stones is correct? A, CT scanning poses the risk of nephrotoxic radiocontrast. B, CT scanning provides little data about adjacent intra-abdominal structures. 
C, IV pilogram is highly sensitive but does not provide information about renal function. Uh, D, plain radiography is highly specific. Or E, ultrasonography is the preferred modality in pregnancy patients but might not identify stones smaller than 5 millimeters. Who thinks A? Who thinks B? C, D, E? E is the correct answer. And um, we're going to go over all the imaging modalities and the benefits of them as well. So we're going to talk about nephrolithiasis. It occurs, 70% um, of all nephrolithiasis occurs in uh, ages between 20 and 50. Um, and of those people, about 50% of them uh, can have recurrence. It is more common in men. These are some of the risk factors associated with that. Um, some metabolic disorders, hypoparathyroidism, sarcoidosis, gout, um, family history, uh, prior kidney stones, uh, dehydration. Um, it says male and white here. So Rosen, speci <laughs> Rosen specifically says uh, Caucasian professional men who are sedentary have a higher likelihood of kidney stones. So stay active. Um, sure. That one little cup of soda doesn't help for that four-hour plane ride. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, that would be a good idea. Um, so there are lots of different types of stones. Um, the most common, of course, is the calcium stone greater than 75%. You can have calcium phosphate or oxalate. Um, struvite comprises about 15%. That's the magnesium ammonium phosphate stones, um, oftentimes uh, associated with a urea splitting bacteria such as proteus. Um, uric acid stones, about 6 to 10%. And those of, of these stones, uh, this is the only radiolucent stone, okay? Uh, and then you have your cysteine and xanthine, which are a little less um, uh, common. Signs and symptoms, we're pretty much all familiar with this. You get colicky, uh, flank pain, and it can radiate to the groin. And in men, they often say it radiates to their testicle. In women, they say it radiates to their labia. So basically, it just radiates down there. Um, you can have dysuria, frequency, hematuria, nausea, and vomiting. Um, if someone is telling you they have fever or chills, um, it should raise your suspicion for an infected stone. However, a lot of our patients often say they have chills but don't really know what that means. Um, so sometimes you have to actually tell them it's like shaking, ch shaking chills, riders. Yeah, that's exactly what I do. Yeah. And I don't know if you guys have ever had rigors. I've had rigors and it is miserable. So most, it's not a fun thing. Yeah, that one. <laughs> 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 That's awesome. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> this is going to be your differential diagnosis for people with flank pain. It has a lot of things in there. So basically anything with the kidney. You can have a renal infarct. You could have a tumor. You can have pilo, uh, papillary necrosis, which can be a, you know in diabetics or sickle cell um, patients. Um, but I think one of the big ones um, that has always been emphasized to me is this one right here. So if someone comes in complaining of left-sided flank pain and um, you know they fit the risk factors for someone with AAA, that should definitely be on your differential diagnosis. I think those patients probably deserve at least an ultrasound on their belly or some sort of uh, something for you to rule out that it's not a AAA. Um, but that's probably the, the big take home from the differential diagnosis here. So that, that came in the pre-CT urogram era. So we used to do IDPs and uh, like those studies, and we would just make the diagnosis of kidney stones clinically. And we, you know, there was the periodic famous malpractice case of the missed leaking abdominal aortic aneurysm because the patient had a little bit of hematuria, and the aneurysm involved the renal artery, and we got a little hematuria from the you know, partially injured kidney, and we'd miss it. That's the, in turn the basis for the general advice that the first onset of flank pain in this guy needs a CAT scan because you're never going to miss the CT 
CT urogram is first of all a great test for the stone, and second of all, you're not going to miss the anomaly rotor aneurysm. CT urogram people, the first time they have the flank pain, right. it sounds like a kidney stone. So I don't think we should ever miss this diagnosis anymore. No. And oftentimes, especially if someone's complaining of chronic flank pain, so sometimes people have triple A's that are kind of lingering there for a long time, and they're just like, okay, maybe it's just back pain, and then it reaches a point where they eventually come into the ER. So those patients with chronic flank pain, that also raises my suspicion for a triple A as well. Um, I had a guy um, who said, I had one year of pain right here. And I was like, well, maybe he's got a stone. I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I was thinking maybe AAA, but it really wasn't that high on, like, on my differential. I thought of it. The guy had a huge ruptured AAA. About 10 minutes after coming out of the CAT scan, um, he was decompensating, hypotensive. He got rushed to the OR, and he made it. But, I mean, like, it was scary. Um, and I really didn't, I was like, this is probably just a stone. Not a big deal. But, anyway. So what are you going to do for these patients? Again, UA, pretty much everybody in this lecture gets a UA. Um, uh, you want to make sure there's no um, infection in the UA. Um, RBCs, if they have RBCs in the urine, um, it should raise your suspicion for a stone. However, 10 to 20 percent uh, in one study that specifically looked at RBCs and um, positive uh, IV pyelograms for stones, 10 to 20 percent of those patients did not have RBCs in their urine. So if they don't have any blood cells in their urine, that should not completely turn you off to um, if they have a kidney stone. pH, it can give you a clue as to um, what kind of stones they potentially have. If their pH is greater than 7.6, it could potentially be a urea splitting um, uh, bacteria causing it. If it's less than 5, it could be a uric acid stone. Um, oftentimes, we see crystal urea um, uh, in the urine as well. Um, you want to check their kidney function um, with your creatinine and BUN. A CBC, um, not everybody orders a CBC on these patients. I'm, I think I'm one of these people that doesn't always order CBC on patients who I think have um, stones unless they have some symptoms concerning for an infectious process. Um, because it can just be elevated uh, with a kidney stone. You can get demargination. But if it's, it's really high, then that should um, raise your suspicion for an infect infectious process. Sometimes you may not have evidence of an infection on your UA because um, of the obstruction itself. So um, if the patient looks toxic, then you should, you should investigate it further. Now, Rosen says that all these patients who have kidney stones or... Uh, you know, stone anywhere in their urinary tract um, should get a serum calcium to screen for any kind of metabolic disorder, such as um, hyperparathyroidism or sarcoid or um, other metabolic problems. So now this is going to address our um, question that we had in the beginning. So CT, uh, spiral CT uh, non-contrast is the imaging test of choice. 97% uh, sensitive, 96% specific. It can detect stones as small as one millimeter. Um, it'll tell you if there's an obstructive process going on. Uh, but as Dr. Langdorf mentioned, it's great also because you can look at other intra-abdominal structures as well. So if you are concerned about a AAA, it gives you a pretty good view of the aorta, um, even though you're not using contrast. And then you can also look, you can potentially see abscesses as well, although contrast um, oftentimes helps with that. Yes? I said that the CT urogram will pick up the AAA. If your leading diagnosis is a AAA, the patient you need. should not go to CT. That begins in CT with yes. AAAs. So <laughs> as my patient. Bedside <laughs> ultrasound, assuming that you have a vascular surgeon or general surgeon who handle this. So it's an incidental finding that you're glad you picked up if you're thinking kidney stone. Right. But if you're really thinking AAA, Right. Definitely. Uh, IV pyelograms, if you don't have a CT scanner and at your facility is the next um, best test for stones, um, it detects uh, about 96% of the cases. Um, but you cannot use it in patients who have uh, either CKD or any kind of renal insufficiency. Um, basically, the test is done by giving a slug of contrast and then waiting about five minutes and taking basically like an x-ray, like a KUB kind of x-ray, and seeing um, if that contrast flows all the way down through the uh, urinary uh, tract or not. Ultrasound, um, as the question um, 
elucidated is less reliable for stones less than five millimeters. Um, only about 64% sensitive for stones, but it's really good at detecting uh, hydronephrosis. So if you see hydronephrosis on your ultrasound, it's probably hydronephrosis. Um, it is the test of choice in pregnancy. So if you have a pregnant patient who you're concerned about a kidney stone, this is what you want to do first. Uh, KUBs, yes? It can potentially tell you how severe the obstruction is, um, or sometimes it's like how chronic the obstruction is. Um, they usually, I mean, people with moderate hydronephrosis oftentimes go home still, so it's not necessarily like a really bad thing if they have moderate hydronephrosis. Now, if they have severe hydronephrosis, that's probably a little bit more worrisome. You, you probably want to get urology involved, and, and that stone probably needs to be taken out or something. Yeah, and so it's the duration of the hydronephrosis that has an effect on the nephron. So we get nervous that if an obstruction persists for a week, we get nervous that there might be uh, starting to lose nephrons. But it's really probably three weeks, and the urologists are like, oh, yeah, so it's a week. But so we, we take a very conservative uh, threshold to worry about you know, the duration of obstruction of a week, but we really probably don't not start knocking off renal function for three. Now, severe hydronephrosis is quite uncommon. That would mean that rim of renal tissue is a thin capsule that's like the whole Almost zero. is filled with calocele system, and that's pretty uncommon. So the, the severe hydronephrosis is, is really, really dramatic on ultrasound, and basically loses most of your renal parenchyma right? to, to this calocele system. So you're not going to see that very often. So most of what we might call GDSF hydronephrosis here is probably at worst mo moderate, and they can still go yeah. Another question. A lot of our patients come in, they've got known kidney stone disease. Um, here again, my kidney stone pain, you look in the system, they had a CT urogram at some time point in the past. And frequently, they will not you know, repeat the CT and just keep that cell down. And I go, okay, great, you're going to go home. So, what's the threshold to rescan the patient? Um, you know, if their pain is much worse than prior, if they have a hydro, um, if there's an, like, uh, if they have a dirty urine or something along those lines, I'd probably rescan those patients. Um, but you're right, in a lot of those patients who this, like, this is my typical kidney stone pain, they don't have hydro, they don't have an infected um, stone or something like that, you could probably send those patients without um, additional imaging and additional radiation to them. Yeah. Yeah. Come back. Yeah. I love return precautions. Love giving those out to people. To answer your question, we often send people home with kidney stones, and we say, oh, it's going to get better. But it takes up to four weeks to pass that stone. In 80% of the time, in the stone less than five millimeters. We don't tell them the other part. We just say, oh, it'll pass. And they think it's going to pass the next time they urinate. That's not. <laughs> 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 and so that's, that's another, just, just their anticipation of what is to come. They go, oh, yeah, the doctor told me. Or they'll be like, gosh, this pain sucks. I'm going to come back and do the So at least letting them know the complete story can be helpful. Mm -hmm. So here we have some images. Um, on the left, we have a KUB, um, which shows basically staghorn calculi um, of the kidney here. And then here we have a stent going all the way down to the bladder, from the kidney to the bladder. And this is an ultrasound of, of basically this, the stent. Um, it's a tubular um, hyperechoic structure within the kidney. So if you see that on your ultrasound, then that means they probably have a stent. Um, here we have a stone seen on ultrasound, hyperechoic structure with some post, uh, posterior acoustic shadowing here. Um, Here's a CAT scan, shows a stone in the, in the ureter, and what's this? Yeah, that's just calcification in the aorta, so not a stone. <laughs> How do you see the stone um, in the ureter with ultrasound? Uh, if, if it's proximal, um, you can sometimes see it. Um, if it's mid to distal ureter, you oftentimes don't get a nice view of that, um, so you... That's why it's not as good as CT. Yeah, in the kidney, that really doesn't mean anything, right? Because that doesn't cause the pain. Right. Yeah, so calcifications within the kidney don't cause pain. 
but you can right so you I guess if you see this here you could potentially assume that there are other stones somewhere in the ureter or something causing pain Uh, so this is an ultrasound of a pregnant woman. Um, she's got uh, about it's like a moderate hydro here. You see these like hypochoic finger-like um, projections into the uh, renal parenchyma, and then she has like a couple tiny stones here, and you see some shadowing. Um, here is actually a stone in her proximal ureter. So if it's proximal, you can potentially see it, um, but again, more distal, you're not going to see it with ultrasound. That's why CT is the best modality. So I just threw this in here because of uh, we're talking a lot about hydro and the stones. So this kind of differentiates between mild, moderate, and, and severe hydronephrosis. So here um, is like a more of a mild. You see some projection out here. Here is more moderate. It's, it's much more prominent. And then here, there's almost no kidney. It almost just looks like a cystic structure um, in the shape of a, of a kidney. Um, so that when you see this, that's, that's severe hydronephrosis. I'm not going to go over this. I'm not talking about hydronephrosis. I just want you guys to know that stones aren't the only reason why you get hydronephrosis. Um, so if you see hydronephrosis, that may not be caused by a stone. You can have reflux. You can have tumors, strictures, um, uh, all kinds of reasons why you could potentially get hydronephrosis. Even just inflammatory processes in the abdomen can cause hydronephrosis, like diverticulitis and appendicitis. So what do we do for these patients? Um, big thing they come in for is because they're in a lot of pain. So you want to control their pain. NSAIDs um, are said to uh, uh, have a great analgesic effect, but they also decrease ureteral spasm. Um, if they're still having pain after that, you can go to narcotics. Some suggest that they may have a synergistic effect. Um, I'm not quite sure how strong the evidence is for that, but. Uh, most of the patients, uh, if they don't have kidney injury, are going to get NSAIDs um, anyways. And I don't know if you guys have, have seen it, but I've seen lots of times where you just give them a dose of Toradol and they feel like 100% better um, after that. Uh, you definitely want to hydrate these patients. Um, oftentimes, the urologist will, will give Flomax. Um, and there aren't a lot of ER studies um, that look at Flomax for stones, but they do have a lot of urology studies from their clinics that they use as outpatient, um, and it's shown to decrease um, the time to passage of the stone and decrease time um, uh, to resolution of their pain. Um, if their stones are greater than five millimeters, um, oftentimes uh, we'll get urology consult because uh, they're less likely to pass those stones. Um, your outpatient instructions, uh, I saw one reference that said just moderate hydration. And then another one actually said two glasses of water an hour. Uh, so I don't know if anybody would actually do this, but um, just I usually just say stay really hydrated. Um, yes? So for the Flomax, um, I went over it in Journal Club, I don't know, two months ago or the last month, and the evidence that the Flomax or the alpha blockers actually make the stone pass more quickly is really pretty crummy. Mm -hmm. They pretty much, this, yeah. They pretty much all say give Flomax. Yes. Oftentimes that that is like you said the urologist will recommend it, however. 
it's enough that they come back and you know, you call for the pharmacy. It's too expensive. Um, so as outpatient, you want to keep them hydrated, get them their pain medication. Um, I'll often give them, you know, Motrin 600, and then I'll give them something for breakthrough pain, also like a narcotic for breakthrough pain. Um, a strainer, that way they can, you know, they'll know when they pass the stone, um, and then a urology referral. And again, return instructions are important for these patients as well. Um, when do you admit these patients? Uh, we kind of already talked about it. If they're not tolerating POs, um, if they have uh, pretty bad obstructive um, uh, signs or uh, infectious process, um, you're going to admit those patients. And then um, that's, that's generally the rule. So all of the following are radio-opaque kidney stones except. Is it A, B, C, or D? Anybody? <coughs> yeah, it's B. Uric acid zones are radiolucent. So, so we'll review there. Okay. Um, what time is it? Do we need to stop? Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. So we'll stop here. The last section I was going to, this is the last section. It was hematuria, but um, we can talk about it some other time. All right. Thank you.